Hi, I'm Cop Thorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled Seeing the Unity, Disidentifying. The content is adapted from Chapter 8 of my book, Toward Wisdom. This podcast episode and the next deal with some of the techniques, the psychological or spiritual practices that help us move into that more holistic space and see the unity in a deeply personal way. The problem I face in attempting to write about these things is a universal one, incompleteness. There are as many paths to wisdom as there are wise people. Also, there are many time-proven, effective practices, many more than one person could evaluate firsthand in a lifetime. Yet there is another problem. On any path to wisdom, there are one-time-only events, flips to new perspectives, flashes of insight, etc. You can't undo these insights. You can't unsee. When you've intuitively realized something, you're no longer the same. You can't have that first-time realization again. This makes it impossible for one person to compare firsthand the relative effectiveness of even two practices. You're only naive once. What writers on spiritual practices normally do is to share their experiences and their feelings about the limited range of practices they have personally encountered. That is what I will do, here and in the following chapter. If I've missed a better practice, perhaps the all-time best practice ever, sorry, but somebody else will have to write that book. Some things that help to start or deepen the disidentification process are serendipitous. One of these is misfortune. Being out of control helps to break down the assumption of infallibility, the assumption that I am controlling what happens. The alcoholic who admits that he can't control his drinking has taken the first step toward sobriety. Humiliation sometimes has a similar effect. The failure of some ego-sponsored venture or shame at some moral lapse helps destroy the assumption that I am always right. These things can weaken the ego and adherence to the ego-centered view. The approach of death can help, too. Seeing the dark at the end of the tunnel, as Gail Sheehy put it, is bound to make me question existing assumptions of control and continuity. This doesn't mean that we must wait for adversity or the onset of middle age. We can adopt today, if we wish, intentional practices which weaken the forces that keep us seeing things in the same old ways. Early in my inner journey, I read several of J. Krishnamurti's books. Krishnamurti focused on the human situation and avoided cosmological speculation. Neither God nor an all-inclusive self were a necessary part of his worldview. His central concern was the mess that the human mind makes of things, and I later came to see him as a spiritual psychologist of the First Order. Seeing what the mind is up to was his goal, and mindful attention to its workings was his method. Krishnamurti felt that the starting point for upgrading our inner lives was seeing with clarity what's going on in our minds. 
We needed to pay close attention to mental events as they happened. Only then could we do anything about them. He spoke of a pathless path that start and ends here. The sort of advice he gave us was this. Watch what's going on in your mind. See the mischief that thought creates. See the danger of it as you would the danger of a poisonous snake in your path. Then simply stop thought unless it is necessary for some legitimate purpose. I tried to take his advice, but found that I couldn't. The problem, as I see it now, is that most of us ordinary people have not developed the skill at attending that Krishnamurti over the years had developed. Although his prescription is correct, his directions call for a bigger first dose than most people can tolerate. The giant step that Krishnamurti asked us to take is beyond us. If we look elsewhere, we find that there are baby step practices which, if followed, earnestly enough, for long enough, will develop the clarity, quickness, detachment, and persistence of noticing necessary to see what needs to be seen. There is, in other words, a practical route to Krishnamurti's goal. Another reason that Krishnamurti's goal is not easy to reach is that the ego, or small s self, doesn't really want us to be aware of what the mind is up to. Again and again, we delude ourselves into thinking that we've cleaned up our mental act, only to discover that we've still been pushing some not-too-pleasant truth about ourselves under the rug of consciousness, denying it or repressing it. The classic defense mechanisms of Western psychology, denial, repression, projection, rationalization, displacement, and intellectualization, are all ways in which we lie to ourselves about mind contents and processes. Defense mechanisms crop up daily in each of us, shielding awareness from some aspect of the truth about mental goings-on. Would-be reality seekers become effective practicing reality seekers when they discover for themselves the extent to which they have been blocking their own view? when they begin to cut through the smokescreen of defense mechanisms. The classic Western way of doing this is to undergo psychoanalysis or some other form of psychotherapy. And this may be exactly what's called for if we have persistent feelings of insecurity, difficulty relating to others, or an abiding sense of low self-worth. If, however, the problem is rooted in existential distress rather than psychopathology, there is another way. It turns out that the same sort of baby step practice that helps us develop steady mindful awareness also helps develop the detachment to see what the defense mechanisms keep shoving out of sight. The form of this practice most familiar to me is called vipassana, insight, or mindfulness meditation. Vipassana means insight in the Pali language. It is the practice I encountered at my first meditation retreat back in 1977. Mindfulness practice does an end run around the defense mechanisms. When you earnestly practice watching mind contents in an honest, non-judgmental, reality-seeking way, you start to see through the smoke screen. You say, ouch! when you do, 
because what you see differs from what you like to see. But at a deeper level, you're glad because you know that seeing what is opens the door for transformation to take place. As Krishnamurti never tired of pointing out, human minds are a mess. And it is only when the individual sees that mess clearly that the mind can and will undergo a radical cleanup. The radical transformation that he advocated and that you and I want. I'm not a Vipassana teacher or a Buddhist, but I'm convinced of the power for change inherent in the practice. Vipassana is easy to practice in the home situation. To begin, you simply sit, close your eyes partly or completely, and pay attention to the subtle sensations that accompany breathing. Students are usually given a choice. You can pay attention to the sensations that the air creates as it enters and leaves the nostrils. Or you can pay attention to the sensations that accompany the rising and falling of the abdomen as breathing takes place. At first, the meditator will be doing well just to keep the attention at the chosen location for a few breaths, let alone pick up subtle nuances. Lesson one in the mechanical nature of mind comes quickly when you realize that attention is drifted away from its object and off into thought. That lesson is taught and retaught countless times as attention drifts off and is brought back to its intended object. At other times, sounds or strong body sensations will capture attention. Whatever the distraction, you're encouraged to note what is happening let it go, and return your attention to breath sensations. Because what sounds so simple turns out not to be, the tendency is to get discouraged and angry. Learning to be gentle and forgiving toward that poor old body-mind takes some time. It also takes time to realize that this drifting off will happen again and again and again. The Buddha once told a man that if only he would be continuously mindful for seven days, he'd become fully enlightened. I wonder if the statement has ever been tested. The task is to be patient and understanding with that poorly programmed brain. As one Asian teacher pointed out, this practice requires infinite patience. The practice also helps to develop it. Most teachers feel that the more time spent doing the sitting practice, the better. One or two sitting sessions per day of 45 minutes to an hour in length are typical of established at-home practices. It sometimes takes a while to work up to sitting for an hour. This is particularly true if the individual is bothered by physical restlessness or has a strong negative reaction to the discomfort that is often present. Most people have never before tried to sit perfectly still for more than a minute or two. The body does eventually adjust and settle down, but like the mind, it also needs training. A typical recommendation is to start with whatever length of time you're able to sit and gradually extend the time until you can sit for an hour. Intensive Vipassana retreats involve the same basic practice thus variations, 
but the continuity of practice and the supportive environment lead the meditator to deeper levels of exploration. Perhaps telling you a bit about my own first retreat will give you some sense of the experience. The retreat was held at the Insight Meditation Society Center near Barrie, Massachusetts. The facility was formerly a Catholic seminary and struck me as perfect for the purpose. There were enough sleeping rooms to house a hundred retreatants and a volunteer staff of twenty. The chapel, with pews removed, made an ideal meditation hall, and there were other large rooms suitable for walking meditation. The grounds were spacious, with eighty acres of woods and room for a large vegetable garden. The woods were filled with 150- and 2-year-100-year-old trees and laced with stone fences built by the early colonists. Along with everything else, the place felt right. It had a peaceful, meditative atmosphere. I was uneasy about doing this first retreat. I wanted to learn to meditate, and my attempts at home had been frustrating. But 12 days, all day, Every day, I arrived late in the afternoon on the appointed day, and after checking out my assigned room and taking a tour of the facility, I headed for the library. There I began talking with a young woman who was back for her second retreat. Her first one sounded like a disaster. She'd had many personal problems at the time, she said, and once her mind started to get quiet, she had begun to cry. After three days of crying, she left the retreat. That was more than a year before. Since then, she had spent time in Bangladesh with the Peace Corps and was enthusiastic about doing another retreat. Her story didn't exactly ease my jitters, but on the other hand, here she was, back again. After supper, we carried our pillows, cushions, and other sitting paraphernalia into the meditation hall and found places to settle in. The introductory talk covered the rules and procedures as well as the daily schedule during the retreat. We were told that the wake-up gong would sound at 4.30 a.m. At 5, we'd start an hour of sitting meditation. Breakfast would be at 6. We'd eat the main meal of the day at noon and have fruit and tea at 5 p.m. There would be a 45-minute talk on some aspect of Buddhism each evening and bedtime was scheduled for 10. Almost all the remaining time would be filled with meditation. Most of the sitting meditation sessions would be an hour long, with half-hour sessions of walking meditation sandwiched between. Food would be vegetarian, and we would have an interview with the teacher every other day. Silence was the rule except during teacher interviews, and both reading and writing were discouraged. As demanding as the routine appeared, it made sense. The object, as I saw it, was to quiet the mind. Not only would talking disturb other people, but it, and reading and writing as well, were left brain activities. If we wanted our noisiest brain hemisphere to quiet down, it was just logical to stop doing those things. I decided to follow the rules and did so, except for the many notes I eventually scribbled in my pocket notebook. After receiving the instructions on breath meditation, we practiced for an hour. A sobering hour. As I had discovered in my few attempts back home, what sounded so simple wasn't. 
There was a veil of fuzziness between me and my perception of the breath, sort of a film or fog, and I found sitting still, even for a few minutes, uncomfortable. This retreat wasn't off to the easiest of starts, but as I headed to bed, I resolved to give it my best effort. The fuzziness continued all the next day and most of the day after that. I found the breath subtle and damnably hard to keep my attention on, which is no doubt why it made a perfect object for training the attention. Again and again my attention would wander, and again and again I would bring it back to the breath. There was a gradual improvement as time went on, but no dramatic breakthrough until late on the second full day of practice. Suddenly, the sensation in the nostrils began to interest me. This dull, boring, stupid sensation that was so elusive had suddenly become interesting. This breathing phenomenon, so much a part of our existence that we rarely notice it unless a head cold interferes with it, had risen from the ground and become figure, an entity capable of engaging my interest. For the rest of that evening, and the pre-breakfast sitting the next morning, the interest and clarity of perception remained, and I could keep my attention on the breath for many minutes at a time. We'd been warned that overeating would interfere with the practice. The meals were delicious, however, and eating was one of the few sensual pleasures left. As a result, I picked out that morning on yogurt and stewed prunes, freshly baked dark bread, banana, and herbal tea with milk. At the next sitting, I found the fuzzy fog back again. My attention tended to lapse, and I was on the verge of dozing off. Lunch was even harder to resist than breakfast. Sliced tofu, stir-fried with bean sprouts, peppers, celery, and served with rice. There's also a salad of spinach and sliced mushrooms with a light coating of creamy dressing. Under protest from my appetite, I went light on the amount, and by mid-afternoon the clarity was back. Something had helped. Sitting for long periods many times a day was not fun. There were knee pains and back pains and pains in the butt. I did everything I could think of to maximize my comfort and tried all three of the basic sitting positions. Most people sat cross-legged on a mat with their backside supported by a high round cushion called a zafu. They used the zafu with traditional yoga postures like the lotus and half lotus or worked out their own variations. Other people used a semi-kneeling posture with a small wooden sisa bench supporting their weight. Still others sat on a conventional chair. I tried them all with every possible variation of cushion, pillow, and foam mat. I gave up on the zafu. It was just too uncomfortable, sort of like Papa Bear's chair. The ordinary chair, on the other hand, affected me like mama bears. It wasn't physically too soft, but whenever I sat on one, my mind got soft and sleepy. In the end, I settled on the Caesar bench. It was just right, as the story goes. The need to support my own back kept me more alert than when I used the chair, yet my knees were under less strain than when I used the zafu. 
Our teacher encouraged us to lengthen our sitting periods if possible and to avoid moving for as long as possible whenever we sat. Having exhausted every external way of increasing my comfort, I started experimenting with some of the internal ways that the teacher suggested. Focusing attention on the painful sensations was sometimes helpful. It helped my concentration to build, and the pain would sometimes lessen or even dissolve completely at times. Occasionally I'd be able to sit for an hour and a half without moving my legs or rear end, but that was rare. There were also times when nothing worked, times when the pain burned so strongly in the knees that it was impossible to sit still, but I kept trying. The first side effect of the meditation involved my dreams. Either I had become better able to remember my dreams, or I was dreaming much more than usual. Perhaps both. There were flying dreams, and travel dreams, and fearful dreams. The meditation practice seemed to be thinning out the barrier between my conscious and subconscious minds. Soon after, I saw that this thinning of the barrier was not just a nighttime effect. About six days into the retreat, insights of various kinds started bubbling up from my subconscious. These were aha and eureka experiences similar to those I'd encountered when solving engineering problems. In situations when I'd had a problem to solve, one requiring a non-obvious creative solution, I would gather facts and try with my conscious mind to solve it. Sometimes this rational process would lead to an answer right away. Sometimes it wouldn't. At times I'd gather data and wrestle with the problem for several days without success. I didn't get too uptight in these situations because I'd learned that my subconscious mind was also trying to solve it. After a period of struggle, I'd put the problem aside and get a good night's sleep. Then, possibly in front of the mirror the next morning, Eureka! The answer would come. It arrived from somewhere in complete, put-together, integrated form. In my experience, two conditions had to be met before this other mind would produce creative insights. First, I had to have fed the intuitive process enough data. Second, the problem and its answer had to be meaningful to me. The quieting of the mind in meditation didn't seem to eliminate either of these requirements, but it did help the process to work. It became clear that the barrier normally present between the conscious mind and this integrative process perforated more readily during and after prolonged meditation. I began to experience moments of sudden intuitive knowing, moments of deep gut-level insight. These retreat insights were not solutions to pressing problems, but they were answers nonetheless. They seem to relate to and arise from the endeavor to grow and understand that I'd begun back in the mid-1960s. Every book I'd read since then, every significant conversation I'd had, and every new wonder I'd experienced was raw data stored away somewhere in memory. What seemed to happen was that my subconscious mind, at some deep level, began fitting those bits and pieces of data together in new patterns and arrangements. I began to get at least partial answers to some of my questions about what our existential situation is all about.
I can vividly recall the first of those big insights. It was the afternoon of the sixth day. I was strolling around the building between sitting sessions, getting the kinks out of my legs, when I noticed an amaryllis in full bloom. There were many flowers and plants around, but that big, showy, horn-shaped white flower seemed worthy of special attention. I sat down close to it and peered into the bell of the horn. The flower's entire structure seemed dedicated to reproduction. The pistil awaiting pollen. The pollen-coated stamen standing erect. The hood-like petal, both protecting those parts and advertising their presence to passing insects. I thought about the flow of life from seed to seed and the plant's involvement with sun, soil, water, insects, and other, quote, external, unquote, factors. Then it struck me. What I was gazing at was not a flower in the universe. It was a flowering of the universe. A realization of connectedness and oneness swept over me. I sensed the oneness of the whole mental physical process we call universe, and I sensed some sort of upward impetus or life force behind it all. I saw individual flowers and people as ephemeral manifestations of the ongoing process, temporary events that mark and define the present state of that process. An individual amaryllis is a sometime thing, its life product, a few seeds, and the atoms of its structure, all to be returned to the earth. It is a temporary center of activity in a much larger process. I saw the process itself as the one basic ongoing entity. I felt blown away by all this, and the excitement lingered. It was clear that many answers to fundamental questions are right in front of us. The problem is that we don't see what's there to be seen because we almost always look with a noisy, distracted mind, and are almost always driven by some purpose. Here I was looking with no purpose, and with a quiet mind, and I was seeing. I felt that the artist in me had opened up. These were deeper, clearer, more real perceptions, freer of stereotypes and cultural assumptions. When that first retreat was over, I felt that it had been the most difficult experience of my life and the most rewarding. Watching mind contents from morning to night, day after day, is hard work. Sitting for long periods is uncomfortable. But in the retreat environment, things do happen much more quickly than in an hour-a-day practice at home. The situation itself facilitates movement toward that gestalt flip. Many activities that reinforce the ordinary view have been removed. There is little, if any, talking. You don't read. You're temporarily freed from problem-solving and other intellectual challenges. In fact, you don't have to do much at all. What is reinforced is mental quiet and paying attention to subtle stimuli. I don't think it's necessary to start mindfulness practice with a retreat, but because our normal industrial culture lives are so busy and buzzy, occasional receipts do seem a necessary part of serious practice. Retreats are also where the teachers are, and while we don't need a teacher forever, it is helpful and reassuring to have some guidance in the beginning 
and from time to time along the way. This practice, especially in a retreat environment, undercuts mainstream culture's domination of our minds. So much of the magic wrought by meditation, and just plain solitude, comes from the dying away of reality-masking influences such as language, structure and vocabulary, the consensus reality perspective, and other cultural influences. Withdrawal from those influences, coupled with heightened awareness or, quote, paying attention, unquote, combined to give the individual a fresh look at the old world. The world is seen more directly, and we become aware that culture spawned categorizing and interpreting has been hiding important aspects of reality. The first thing that typically occurs in a Vipassana practice is that the mind starts to quiet down. Again, this is especially evident after the first few days of an intensive retreat. If we try to tell ourselves to stop thinking, it probably won't work. If, however, we direct attention to some object other than thought, to the sensation of the breath at the nostrils, for example, thinking eventually subsides all by itself. The first events worth noting result from this quieting of the rational verbal mind. They are what often occurs with any type of meditation, including mantra meditation. I refer to the bubbling up into consciousness of previously subconscious stuff. Facts and impressions that we have suppressed or repressed often arise when the mind gets quiet. We start to have psychological insights, insights connected with the way we are currently living our lives. Sometimes, too, there are insights about the past, and sometimes remorse about the unskillful, unhelpful ways we've acted in the past. It's a bit like psychotherapy, except that it's the quiet mind that brings significant material up into consciousness, not the questions of a therapist. Such insights can have therapeutic value, of course. Such insights can have therapeutic value, of course. Regardless of what triggered them, they can lead to changes in our behavior. Other early insights are what I might call existential or cosmological insights. Insights into what is going on and what it's all about. My Amaryllis experience was one of these. Some people have them, particularly those who are seeking answers to existential questions as I was. Others don't. Like the psychological insights, they arise because the mind is at long last quiet, not because mindfulness has improved significantly. If your mind is one of those busy, buzzy ones and you do not yet have open communication between your intuition and intellect, your first quiet mind experience might possibly be as dramatic as mind was. For many others, it would not be. Clearly, my intellect had not been in the listening mode for years. The intuitive process had lots to tell me, and I was not going to let this rare opportunity pass. Another thing that happens when the mind gets quiet is that intuition and intellect start working together in harmony. Our deepest, most satisfying knowing occurs when the intuitive and intellectual knowings agree. When there is a concept or mental model to fit the feelings and a feeling of intuitive rightness 
to accompany the concept. The models and metaphors of our rational mind give form and detail to the intuitions of the guts. Also, flashes of intuitive insight help us to internalize, truly see and accept those intellectual models that fit and flesh out our intuitions. Understanding in the deepest and fullest sense is not a matter of intellect or intuition. It's a product of the harmonious, congruent meshing of intellectual models and intuitive insights. Intellect is a facilitative process, and just as intellect can help the limbic brain pursue its reactive goals, so intellect can help intuition pursue its holistic ones. As you continue to practice this sort of meditation, mindfulness gradually develops. Mindfulness is careful noticing. It is being able to see what is happening in the mind. It is being aware of what you do as you do it. It is noticing what the body-mind does as it interacts with its milieu. As the mind starts to adopt mindfulness as a habit, it begins to have the type of insights that insight meditation is really all about. Insights into the nature of the mind-body process. We start to see for ourselves the things that Krishnamurti and many others have told us are there to see. What a difference seeing for ourselves makes. It makes all the difference. Intellectual knowledge is like a tentative hypothesis. We believe it to a point, but only to a point. Eventually we begin to see for ourselves. Yes, this really is the way it works. Then the intellectual knowledge moves from the head to the guts. It becomes our personal wisdom. It is totally convincing, and we comfortably base life decisions on it. If the practice is continued, mindfulness eventually develops to the point where reactive impulses are regularly seen in the impulse stage, before those impulses become full-blown states of mind. The brain's decision-making process then has a tremendous amount of leverage in dealing with them. There does not seem to be any way to reprogram or retrain the brain to prevent totally such impulses from arising. But if the individual has internalized the value of not turning reactive impulses into reactive mind states, then the brain can take steps not to start the, quote, story, unquote, that converts the first into the second. This is the stage when Krishnamurti's kind of looking at last becomes possible. You look, and when you have seen the damaging chain of events for yourself, possibly for the 200th time, you begin to see the danger. It starts to seem positively nuts to continue to crave or get angry or jealous. It becomes apparent that all this pain is being created needlessly. Mindfully noticing our unskillful, unhelpful, unpositive ways of thinking, emoting, and behaving is all that is necessary to start the transformation process. Nothing else needs to be done. Prolonged mindfulness meditation also fosters disidentification with the show in consciousness. Acceptance is one of the factors at work. 
meditator practices accepting the contents of the present moment, whatever they are. Because this is the opposite of I-type behavior, this acceptance of what is slowly, gradually undermines the I. We can look at this as the dying away of a bad habit. Identification with body and mind contents is to some extent a mental habit like other mental habits. It is a well-entrenched habit, but one that can at least be weakened by not exercising it. When we non-judgmentally watch mind contents, egoic activity dies out. When we just look and accept, identification weakens. The mind then moves closer to the point where a gestalt flip of disidentification slash reidentification is possible. Simply becoming still, both physically and mentally, also changes the balance of mental influences and moves us toward the point where a flip to that other gestalt can occur. During prolonged sittings, awareness watches mental event after mental event happen automatically. The whole show being created by unconscious brain activity. There is constant movement and change in the mental display. A moment may come, however, when awareness becomes aware of awareness. When the observing faculty becomes aware of itself as an entity separate in some sense from the show and different in nature. At such moments, it becomes clear that awareness is inherently still and unchanging, and that all motion, all change, resides in the informational show. Stillness of body, as well as mind, seems to help this sort of realization to occur. English is not a language that allows us to describe the complete relationship between awareness and the show in one short sentence. As a result, you may still find the matter confusing. At times, I speak of awareness and the informational show as being separate, and from one perspective they are, but from another perspective they are not. Perhaps an analogy will make the situation clearer. If you tune across the FM broadcast band with one of the older receivers, you hear a loud hiss between stations. In our analogy, this hiss corresponds to nothingness, to no reality at all. When you tune to a station's frequency, the hiss disappears. If there is no program at that moment, there is silence. The energy carrier that the station sends out corresponds to being, still, quiet, but powerful and enabling too. What it enables is the transmission of the program show. The show modulates the carrier, changing the carrier's frequency in FM or its amplitude in AM. The physical reality is the carrier itself. The show is a changing informational pattern encoded in the instant-to-instant changes impressed upon the carrier. The show and the carrier are separate conceptually. They are different kinds of reality. At the same time, They are one in the physical reality of an energy carrier undergoing modulation. Similarly, awareness and the mental show, 
are conceptually different kinds of things and in that sense are separate. They are one, however, in the reality of awareness undergoing modulation. Careful noticing allows us to avoid much pain. Disidentification allows the pain that remains, the unavoidable pain, to stop being a big deal. Once the identification with mind contents is broken, those contents lose their power to manipulate and coerce and limit the actions of the body-mind. That power comes directly from identification, from the belief that they are me. Once the body-mind no longer believes that, their power is gone. At this point, we see just a churning biocomputer spitting out an incredible mixture of helpful and unhelpful information, as it always has. We see that even the big bugaboos like fear and jealousy are just harmless information-coded energy. We become free to settle back into our true cosmic identity, watch the informational show, and be intuitive wisdom. That ends the Wisdom Page podcast episode titled Seeing the Unity, Disidentifying, adapted from Chapter 8 of my book Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.